But uh, anyway, we'll go ahead and start with 1 Corinthians 16, last chapter, shorter chapter, a little bit uh, simpler chapter, and yet there are some things that kind of carry over from what we've seen, and I think as well there are some things that Paul does here in the close that he does because of um, the conversations that have been happening so far. So we'll try to bring those out and add a little bit more to chapter 16 then as we go. And then I want to go back and just look back over the whole of the book together now that we've taken it apart individual chapter by chapter, kind of go back and see that big overall theme again. But first let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that a letter to a church so long ago, Lord, in so many different ways, speaks to us even today of uh, how we how we value one another and the differences and the diversity of giftings and abilities and serving. Uh, Lord, how we are careful to, to know and to stand for your truth, that it does matter. It matters, Lord, in how we live today, and it matters in how we live for your tomorrow. Father, help us tonight then to, to learn from this chapter also. There's something here for us, Lord. Um, help us to see it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to pre-K. Okay. <laughs> so chapter 16, you have an outline in front of you. Um, final question about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Their final collection. Now before, before I get into that, I want to ask a question. What do you think is the uh, tone right now between Paul and the Corinthian church? And particularly some of the leaders, more influential people. The people that are leading in these various directions that he's been addressing. What do you think the relationship is between them? Is it all good? Is it warm and fuzzy? Is it? Are they at loggerheads? Oh. I think it's more of an understanding. I don't think that anybody's happy and warm and fuzzy. Okay. Because Okay, okay, so there has been flaws pointed out, there's been correction, there's been some, some strong words, in fact, at times. Okay, so a little tension, there, there would have been at one point a much warmer relationship, kind of in the, uh, the warm glow and hearing the gospel and learning the, the truth from Paul and having it unpacked um, from him. And yet over time they've kind of gone a little bit on their own and he's now parents had to come back and correct, so to speak. And so that's created some tension. And um, when you have to correct, what else would you like to do? You've had to give somebody correction. You've had to confront them on some things. Before you end the conversation, what else would you like to do? Okay, you'd like to reaffirm something. You'd like to commend them in a direction. You'd like to, in some ways, affirm or lift them up. Okay, and I think we see Paul doing that a bit here in this chapter 16. That's probably why. Now, start of chapter 16, now concerning. What does that tell you? Okay, this is another one. He's, he's, he's getting to one more topic, which they had sent in their list of topics they had sent questions to him on. Um, what were some of those other topics? Some of the other now concernings. Okay, what about spiritual gifts? 
And the spiritual gifts question was in particular, you're, I think you're right, Don, it, it was focused on spiritual, on, on, on the use of the gift of tongues. How should tongues be used? Is it good to use tongues in this way? We're not sure how they address that question. Uh, Paul resp- answers it a little bit differently. He, he starts wide and narrows in. So you know the question was really about tongues, but he starts wider. Okay, what's another topic? Okay, in terms of some of the, like, the headship issues that were addressed in chapter 11, okay? Yeah, and that flowed into not only um, Andy and uh, how, how people would lead and such in the services together, and then how they did the table together. That seemed to be another issue that he raises in that same area, like the, the gifts. There were the questions about, um, I'm sorry? The question about the doctrine of the resurrection, yeah, that uh, is there really a resurrection? Does this really matter? Is this really important? Um, it seems to be, yes. <laughs> Paul, Paul, is, Paul is quite adamant that the resurrection is important and our knowing about it. And uh, let's see, he asked, um, they asked questions about marriage and about should people even bother to be married today? Should they just devote themselves wholly to the Lord? Or um, was it still right to marry if Jesus was coming soon? Um, what about, um, here we have um, you know, a nice pagan couple, then one of them gets saved and the other one doesn't want to be part of that. And that that's a change. What do you do? And um, so divorce and remarriage issues came up. Um, food, food sacrificed in the marketplace, or food for sale in the marketplace. Food has been sacrificed to idols. Should we go to the banquets? Well, is it okay to eat that food at all? What if I go to somebody's private home? Um, can I eat the meat if it was offered? Or, and, well, maybe they didn't say anything at first, and then maybe they make a deal out of it. What are the different scenarios? So, a lot of questions. And now he comes down to the last one, which is the collection for the saints. Uh, we don't know if Paul had, had mentioned this to them previously. We don't know if they heard about it from others. They're going to get more information on that in the second letter. Um, you can write um, a nice side reference here would be 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 pick up on the same topic and address it in more detail. So here he simply says, first of all, the Corinthian church is in this manner too, I put in parentheses, given the same instructions he's given to the other churches. So he's not giving them different instructions than he's given the other churches. He said something like that before, as in all the churches. And so his instructions about the Lord's table are pretty standard instructions that they should fall in line. The um, principles about spiritual gifts, that's standard across the churches. This is not a unique to Corinth situation. Doctrine of the resurrection isn't unique to Corinth. And in this manner too, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Do it in the same way. So he's not picking on them in particular. He's not giving a special case. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. What do you get out of that one? Verse 2. I'm sorry? Yeah. Oh, he doesn't, Paul doesn't want to be a hardship to them when he arrives, and they, they have to sacrifice 
Okay, yeah, if you try to do all the collecting at once, once he comes and they say, oh yeah, that's right, that offering, then if they're going to do anything substantial, then they're going to have to dig real deep and that could create a hardship. Okay, that's, that's one aspect. Uh, what else maybe does he want for them to have in this? Yeah, he wants them to do this every week. Put, put something aside that they... Um, you, you use the word practice? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to learn that. Okay. Okay, that, that, that practice. That re there, and, there, and there's also, there's a regularity of with w out of whatever I have, I set something aside. And um, whether it's, whether I, I'm, I've had a really good, prosperous week, or whether I haven't had much business this week. I have more to give or I have less to give, but out of whatever I have, I'm able to give something. There's that, there's that proportion idea that you see elsewhere in Scripture. Yeah, Monica? Well, actually, tithing, that's a good question. Does, is this an example of where tithing comes from? Because it's also proportionate. Where a tithe means a tenth. A tithing, the earliest example I can think of would be Abraham. When Abraham uh, goes and rescues his nephew, then he gives a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. And the tithing isn't uh, mentioned at all in the New Testament, is it? Ah, uh, da da da. Certainly, certainly, giving is, and but Paul's Paul's principles in giving in this in this in this offering is not a tenth, so he doesn't mention a here a tenth, and uh, yeah, I can't think of a place where where, where Christians are are given to tithe. Uh, some people say, well, tithe was with the law, so we're not under the law anymore, so we don't tithe anymore. But tithe predates the law. So tithing is a good example of proportionate giving out of how God has blessed. Um, the, all the way through, you, you do find this proportionate giving, giving out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. For instance, that's a phrase um, that will arise in those following chapters that I mentioned. So there's a proportionate thing. Uh, tithe is, a, is an early practice, pre-law, but it's not something that is a mandate for the church. Um, I've, heard, I've heard people say that um, um, tithe might be a good, good place to start. Maybe some people ought to, could give a whole lot more than that. Uh, one example of that was R.G. Letourneau. He started tithing out of his business, and then toward the end of his, his very prosperous and heavy equipment. Um, tractor, um, road construction type stuff. And he ended up giving 90%. Yes. I'm sorry? Yes. Yeah, and he, and he kept 10. Yeah. So a lot of people would say, I, I give a 10th, that's good. Well, there's tithes and offerings. You can, you, can, you can give free will offerings in the law as much as you wanted. Um, and so that'll be addressed in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as well. But there's a, and Paul doesn't seem to want this to be about him. He doesn't want to come and wave the flag and say, come on guys, come on guys, we need to gather what we can for those saints in Jerusalem. Now what's going on with the saints of Jerusalem? Why are the Gentile churches collecting for them? Yeah, when they come to faith in Jesus, they're being ostracized. Just like Paul was one of the ones who used to ostracize them. 
drove them out of town. It wasn't safe to remain in Jerusalem for a while, certainly for leaders. And so the, the um, um, so many of the church leaders, except for the apostles themselves, fled Jerusalem. Some of the apostles were killed in Jerusalem as a result. Um, James, for instance. And so uh, there's a lot of persecution, even family. Uh, you can be ostracized from your own family, um, kind of like you see in the Muslim world today. You could also, it would often um, um, eliminate your income. You may have your stall in the market, but nobody's going to buy your stuff because they know you're one of those. And um, if you buy from the stall of a Christian, then the Pharisees are going to come down on you, and you might be lumped in with them. And, so, so people don't want to get in trouble. Um, there were those that believed in Jesus even in the Gospels before his death, but they kept it. They did so in secret because they were afraid of the Pharisees or the, or they were afraid of the chief priests. And so, um, believers, Jewish believers in Jerusalem especially, were under real hard financial times. They had also many of them. Remember in Acts chapter five, they many of them sold their property. And they laid the money at the apostles' feet, and it was then shared with others in need, others who were ostracized. So initially, the church in Jerusalem, they shared their wealth among one another because they were convinced that Jesus is coming real soon. He said he was coming soon. They assumed that soon was real soon. And we don't need this land that we have had because Messiah is going to come and he's going to redistribute the land as, as is described in Ezekiel. So there's another thing that leads to the poverty of the church. Those believers faithfully gave away their wealth. And they don't have it anymore. They don't have the means, the fields, the flocks to make an income any longer. So all of that leads into this gift um, for the saints in Jerusalem. Now then, verse 3, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by the letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. He wants them to choose who should who should safeguard this. This is cash money. They're going to be carrying cash money um, from uh, from near Athens down there in Corinth, all the way around the Mediterranean back to Jerusalem. It's a long way. A lot could happen. And uh, it's trustworthy people that are going to be trusted with this amount to carry. It's going to be a significant amount of cash money by then. They can't do a bank transfer. Such things don't exist. No wire transfers. Yeah, done. And his letter would be like a permit, right? Okay, his, um, um, I, whom you accredit by letter, yes. Yes, he wants the church to say, these are the people. He wants them to take a, to, to, to identify. The, the church officially will say this person, this person, and this person. And uh, that will be the reason then. There's, there's accountability, there's transparency here, there's checks and balances, there's receipts. So these people are going to sign for the money and they're going to take it on to, to Jerusalem then. They're now going to be accountable for it. And uh, so he's, he's putting that in their hands. So he's not saying, I'll choose who. This is your gift, you own it, you safeguard it. You choose who should carry your gift. It's the same way that Paul, with the spiritual gifts, he put ministry into their hands. 
In Ephesians 4.12, he does something radical that along the way the church forgot, which is the pastors and teachers, apostles and evangelists, their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God didn't gift certain people or create certain offices or roles in order to do the work of the ministry. And so there's the same thing you see here. Paul, Paul has that same frame of mind. This is their gift. This is their offering. This is for them to handle and manage and steward and carry and safeguard. And yet there's accountability. He lays out accountability. That, and it's not that he, I don't trust some people in Corinth. You know, I'm not sure you guys would... Some of you guys that handle it right, so you, you need to dot the I's and cross the T's and be sure you, you, you track it accurately. No, he says this is for a lot like the churches in Galatia. Same thing with you. Everybody's doing it this way. So it's nothing to them individually. And then verse 4, if it seems advisable, I should go also, they will accompany me. What's going on there? Given that this was still Roman territory controlled with an iron fist, and there's always crime, but how dangerous was it to travel that far back then? I mean, they were there. Yeah. There's always there's always the potential for bandits on the on the way. Yeah, that can certainly happen. And when you have a bag full of money, yeah, that can happen. And there's, and there's also the danger of people pilfering out of the purse. Um, that's what happens with Judas, apparently. We're told in the Gospel of, of John, I think it is, that Judas used to take from the, um, the um, purse. And so he was, he was the one charged with the, um, with the corporate account. And um, he's the one that instigated the grumbling against the woman who had this perfume, 300 denarii, 300 days salary. That's a lot of money. That could have been sold and that money given to the poor. Of course, through the money bag that Judas controlled because he used to steal out of it and throw more in. There's more to take from, bleed a little off. And so he would wet his beak, so to speak, as the gangsters would say. Um, get a taste. The... Um, it seems that if it's advisable that I should go, Paul's not, again, this is their gift, not Paul's. If they would like Paul to accompany it as well, then they can travel with him on his return. If they want to send their gift separately. So by not over-controlling it, there's a trust building going on, I think. That Paul's not saying, well, this is my little project. If you want to participate, it's going to be on my terms in ways that connect through me, in ways that make me look good. Paul's not doing that. He's, he's encouraging them to, to participate. Um, but as their gift, not his. Any other questions on the collection? And like I said, it'll come up again. Okay, now plans for travel. And these plans for travel, this is going to get answered in chapter, or rather in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, he defends the fact that he didn't come. He laid out travel plans. I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia. But then he doesn't do it. And they say, well, why not? And it's because of what happens in between. And they don't respond well to this letter. This correction is a little hard for them. And it doesn't go real well. And so there's a harsher letter that he has to send after this one. And because of that harsher letter, then he doesn't, he doesn't um, visit right away because he doesn't want to 
have to come and be harsh in their presence. He wants to wait until they're ready for him to come. And so he does some other visiting in Macedonia, but he doesn't come to them. And they say, well, well, you said you were going to come, and you didn't come, see? And so he has to go back and explain that. But these were his original plans. I will visit after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through, and I will, perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey. Paul's travel plans helped to maintain a good continuing rapport. And so even though they didn't take some of his correction well, they were still looking forward to him coming. And they were disappointed that he didn't come. Why didn't you come? You said you were coming. And does this mean we can't rely on you? We can't rely on, the, on what you say you're going to do, so maybe we can't rely on what you say. And so he has to go back and explain that. But, so there's a neat, at least enough of a rapport maintained that they wanted him to come. That's a good question. Did he, did he spend time equally or did he, did he focus more in one place and another? And it seems, for instance, he explains that, a nice segue into um, verse, verses 7 and 8. I don't want to see you just in passing. I want to spend a little time with you, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits, there's always that qualification, isn't there? We hold our plans in open hands. Okay? But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He stays in Ephesus a total of about three years. He's a long time in Ephesus. And so Ephesus gets more of Paul than almost anywhere else that I know of. I think, except maybe the Antioch church or Tarsus. Uh, so he's in Ephesus a long time. He's not in Corinth that long in any of his visits. Um, so some places did get, and Ephesus is a very strategic place. Ephesus is, uh, you have Rome, you have Athens, you have Ephesus, and you have Jerusalem. Those are the centers of the Roman world, the Jewish world, the Greek world, Athens, and the Asia, Asia Minor world, what's now Turkey and beyond. Uh, that was the uh, center of that. The, the, um, the, the front door into all of Asia was Ephesus. And so to, to have an extended time and, and to root the gospel well in Ephesus was very important. Now Corinth becomes very important as well because it's such a pass-through place. You, you can establish the gospel well and it's going to go all over from there because there's so much shipping passing through Corinth. It's where they made their money. And so Paul does seem to also focus on places that are strategic for the gospel to spread. And that people in these centers that he goes to, he passes other towns and doesn't stay. Um, because knowing, okay, he goes from Philippi, he passes through a couple of other places along the way, and doesn't stop there, doesn't preach the gospel, doesn't, doesn't wait for the synagogue on Saturday. He moves on to Thessalonica, knowing that the people he reaches in Philippi, the people he reaches in Thessalonica, they will each go the day's journey or more out from their cities, and they will pick up those places that he passed through. Again, sharing the ministry. So he has a desire for continuing fellowship and partnership. He cannot come too soon because there's ministry needs in Ephesus as well as an opportunity. And there are many adversaries. So there's, huh, well, look at verse 9. What does verse 9 tell you? 
there's a wide door for ministry because there's a lot of adversaries. There are, there, there are two things happening there. There is a wide door. There is an open door. You've heard about an open door, right? How's the Lord leading? And he says, I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. End of verse 7. Well, how do I know if the Lord permits? Well, is there an open door to do it? And then sometimes we look at circumstances and say, well, there's opposition or there's all these things getting in the way. Things getting in the way are not necessarily God's door closing. Sometimes things are getting in the way because God has opened the door. And uh, there is opposition there because this is going to make a real spiritual difference. Um, I remember something J. Vernon McGee used to say on the radio in my time with Transworld. Um, if you throw a rock down a dark alley and you hear a yell, it means you hit something. So sometimes the opposition, sometimes the difficulties in response are because we hit something. Because we're, we're actually, we're pressing forward where there is spiritual reality here. And it matters whether it succeeds or not, and so that's why it's opposed. So there can be an open door and adversary at the same time. And then he gives some instructions about Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. He's just a kid. He's just a young guy. What is, who's this Timothy? What, why does he send him? Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So they, they, basically they should receive and send Timothy just as they would Paul. Paul. Paul wants further partnership with him. Paul says, I hope that you will help me on my journey in verse 6. He wants, he wants them to help him in further ministry to others. Which is interesting because he's going to say, I think, in, I think it's in the second letter, not the first letter. In, in 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk about how I robbed other churches in order to minister to you. And uh, so he didn't, he didn't receive income from them. But when he's going somewhere else, he urges them, he encourages them to give in order to support him going to someone else. It's kind of like when I was a missionary, it was very, very easy to ask for money for another project, to encourage people to support another missionary. I found it much more awkward to talk about our own support. And so I normally wouldn't unless somebody asked the question. Um, and then I would answer the question. But I didn't want to um, be lobbying for our support, but I had no trouble at all doing that for the sake of others. Yeah, her dad was that way. Mm, okay. We Right, right. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And and there's also there's something in that that does keep it keep the um, that financial appeals from becoming an obstacle. Paul realized, for instance, that the Corinthians were still a bit immature, and he didn't want that to be a distraction, that they thought they were paying him, that, you know, that, well, because there's this, there's this, in the, in the Greek world, there's this patron-client relationship. And when you are the patron of someone who is your client, you are their benefactor, you support them, you provide for them, 
then they are obligated to you and to your esteem and to build you up and to be your support. And so if Paul needs to confront them with the gospel, if Paul needs to shepherd this church and continue to lead these leaders, in if they're still hung up in Greek culture and norms, if they're Paul's financial benefactors, they're not going to listen to Paul. Paul should listen to them. And so there's that extra baggage that could come in. And so Paul robs other churches. The Philippian church sent once and again to support him along the way. And um, uh, so that, that's how he survives. And then he goes into business with Priscilla and Aquila. And he's a, he's a, he's a, a canvas maker. He, he makes not only sails for ships, a lot of shipping going to and fro, but also he makes tents for the people who come like for the Ismithian Games and things like that, kind of like our Olympics. So people that come and need temporary lodging, well, Paul's got tents for sale. And that's how he provided for himself so he could speak the gospel to them freely. But, no, 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 you can take an offering to, to, to uh, help the saints in Jerusalem. Please, you should. He wants them to give. He just doesn't necessarily want it for him. But if you want to help send me to others that need the gospel now, he said, yeah, we're all in for that. So then they become the benefactors of others in need of the gospel. Yeah? So Timothy was like an apprentice that he was warning saying, Come along behind me. Yeah, Timothy's the young intern. Yeah, and he's a young guy when he joins Paul, but man, he jumps in the deep end. I mean, Timothy leaves out of Lystra, where earlier, earlier times, Lystra and Derb, where earlier there they tried to kill Paul. And they left him for dead. And now Paul comes through again, and they and he picks up Timothy, and they takes him. He joins the missionary band. He's 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 of age now, but he's a young guy. And they they run into nothing but trouble. Ever since Timothy joins the team, they got nothing but trouble. They try to go this way, and they can't. The Holy Spirit won't let them. They can't go towards Ephesus. No, not yet. And so they try to go the other way. No, they can't go that way either. And so they end up at the water's edge at Troas. They run out of road. They come to the end of the line. Lord, what are we supposed to do? And that's when Paul has the vision. The Macedonian man, come over here and help us. Okay, clear direction from the Lord. Well, it's not the face of Jesus at the end of the bed while you're sitting there next to the Koran, but a little allusion to this morning. The, um, and so they, they go and they get to Philippi, and wow! There's these, there's these, there's these people. There's these ladies down by the river, and uh, there's this, there's people Paul's engaging with in the marketplace, and there's this servant girl, and she's delivered from from this spirit, and all of a sudden the wheels come off, and Paul and Silas, the two senior guys on the on the trip, the leaders of the missionary band, they're arrested and thrown in jail. Well, they're beaten first, then they're thrown in jail, right? And Timothy. Doesn't get caught up on all that because he's just—he's just Timothy. He's just a helper. He hasn't been doing the preaching and doing the casting out of demons. So, but his two leaders have just been arrested, beaten, and thrown in jail. Well, what's he supposed to do now, right? And then he's caught up further in some of these. And Paul's sending him here and there. Well, and and there's these conflicts going on between personalities um, with the church here in Corinth and. And Paul's Paul's got Timothy coming through. Maybe maybe Timothy's um, helping with the with the carrying of messages or something. I'm not quite sure, but Timothy's going to come through, and he's Paul's assistant. But he's not Paul. 
and they can feel slighted. Oh, you just sent, you just sent your helper. You can't be bothered to come to us yourself. You know, if they're proud about themselves. And so all those dynamics are at work, and, and he, he affirms Timothy to them. Take care of Timothy like you would me. Treat him like me. He's, he's there on my behalf. Yes, yes. Later on, he refers to him as my son in the faith. Yes. And he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Yeah, at this point, nobody else... That, that might seem an overstatement to others. You know, Paul's the, the guy. Timothy's his, his helper. Along, along to take care of things here and there along the way. But, but uh, Paul's the guy. You don't even hear much of Silas on this trip. And yet... Um, from Paul's perspective, he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Again, there's that each role matters. God, God is using him. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way that he may return to me. And then he also throws in some instructions. And I included this. In the ESV, they moved this into a new section. But I think it's part of the, of the um, travel plans and the instructions about others that all roll together. So I, I included verse 12 in with the, these earlier verses. The church may have asked for Apollos. They like Apollos. Apollos is a good Greek guy. He, he knows them. He gets them. He preaches in their style. Paul doesn't seem to so much. In fact, they'll talk about Paul's preaching in the next, in the next, um, in the next letter as well. There's some comments that Paul, Paul makes about that. Concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. What's going on there? Why doesn't Apollos want to come? They like Apollos. Well, we, um, Apollos is, is brought along further by some of Paul's partners, Priscilla and Aquila. They seem to be of the same mind, as far as we know. And then uh, Paul talks about he and Apollos are fellow laborers. That they were, some are baptized, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. Um, so people had their favorites. And so there's the potential for division around personalities. But Paul says, no, no, we're, we're on the same team. I planted Apollos waters and God gives the increase. So Paul says, no, there's not a distinction between us. We're all, we're all pulling together here. And so maybe Apollos doesn't want to get caught up in the Corinthians games. As they're playing political personality games, Apollos doesn't want to be used by them in their tensions. He doesn't want them chewing his ear, trying to get him to their perspective, and maybe get some criticism of Paul from him. He doesn't want to be drawn in the middle of this. He's not, he's, he's, he's not, uh, it's not Apollos' place to criticize him. Paul's the one. Paul planted the church. Paul's responsible for them. He, he's correcting them. Apollos doesn't enter into that either. But he doesn't want to be used by them in a sense to um, get in the way of what Paul's trying to do. 
text here says not at all his will, but the footnote says or God's will for him. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and that would be a, um, a matter of who's his are we talking about. It's not a matter of his will or, or um, is his will Apollos' will or is his will God's will, I guess, would be a way to look at it. I'm not sure if there's, if there's a difference in the Greek manuscripts on that point. in order that he will come to you with the brothers now the the um, if I go back to the the now concerning they they'd apparently asked him to send Paul Apollos as well maybe you got the now concerning again so are we now to another Okay, you, you had asked about Apollos. Well, Apollos doesn't want to come right now. It's not, and it's important, I think, with the tensions, that it's, it's important that Paul doesn't say, no, I won't send Apollos now. It's that Apollos is not at all willing to come. He was, it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. The conflict wasn't between Paul and Apollos. No. Well, it was between Paul and the Corinthians. And so Apollos doesn't want them to use him as leverage to not listen to Paul, to try to put a wedge between Apollos and Paul. That's what the Corinthians might try to do. They might try to get Apollos more of their side of things, their perspective. Paul doesn't really understand us. He's not from here, but you are. You understand us. You know the situation here. You know what it's like with, uh, with the meat in the markets. You know what it's like with the pressures of the, the pagans around us. And Paul doesn't know that. You know, he's isolated in Jerusalem. And he's from a different world. Okay. So then, okay, we thought travel plans and what's going on with a lot of personalities. The closing admonitions reinforce principles Paul stated in the letter and reaffirm the, Christ, the Corinthian messengers and leaders. So there's another group of people that Paul also needs to affirm, and that's the, those who were the, the Corinthians messengers who are carrying back the letter. They've been talking with Paul. They're having perspective from Paul that they're also going to probably talk about. And so Paul affirms them. He affirms them and he affirms the leaders in the, in the church there in Corinth whom he knows are loyal to him that they really need to subject themselves to. But he says something else interesting as we go into this. Now first of all, verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. What is this string of exhortations, a string of commands? What is that all about? How does that relate to the letter as a whole, do you think? Well, the men are supposed to be the spiritual leader of their household. Okay, so there was a, there was a male headship issue that was raised earlier. That, that, that came out. And so, for the men to be men, the King James, I think it says, quit ye like men. Which is, a, um, actually there was a little journal, a magazine, that, that I used to get for a while. It was called Quit Ye Like Men. It was basically a call to, to, to biblical manhood that, that, that men should be men and they should be strong and they should be willing to stand up and take a stand and, be, and um, give themselves for their family and, and so on. 
but to, to act like men, to stand firm in the faith. Well, that's been a problem. That's been a problem in relating to the, um, in chapter 1, the, the foolishness of men versus the wisdom of God. And it's also a problem at the end of the letter in chapter 15, where the foolishness of men concerning resurrection has um, intruded into the orthodoxy of Jesus is risen and we are risen in Christ. And so they need to stand for the faith. They need to stand firm in that those things that they were taught. They need to be watchful of things around them. They need to be watchful in the church, chapter 5. They need to be watchful about the temptations of immorality that are around them, chapter 6. They need to be watchful for the spiritual issues and dangers that are behind the idolatry of the meat markets and the pagan temples in which the meat is sacrificed. And so they need to have spiritual eyes wide open. So there's some echoing back to some of the issues raised in the letter, I think, in these phrases. They're not just general kind of boilerplate. Paul always says these things in his letters, because he doesn't. And so he includes them here. I think they relate back to some of that. Steve? It looks like the undertoning thing is, you know, not, you guys just need to stand firm. I think the undertone is, it makes a difference. Yeah. If, if you do this, it makes a difference. It's not just, I think he's encouraging, but it, because it makes a difference. It's not just for your sake. It makes a difference yeah. what you do. Yeah, what he's calling them to do is what, and let all that, you, all that you do be done in love, that exhortation in verse 14. Well, that's, golly, that sounds like a summary of his spiritual gifts chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, there, and what he's, what he's encouraging them to do as leaders in the church is what he is doing toward them as their leader. He's being watchful of what's going on in Corinth. He knows things and he addresses things first in the letter that they didn't even bring up, right? He's familiar with what's going on there. He's got his own people that have informed him. And uh, he is standing firm for the faith. He's not going to budge. He's not going to move. They may not be sure if resurrection matters, but he's quite clear on it. And he's not, he's not sacrificing. Over in Galatia, he wouldn't even give in to Peter when it came to imposing the law, the Jewish law, upon Gentile Christians. He wouldn't give in, not even for an hour, he says, that the truth of the gospel might remain. And what Paul has been doing for the churches, he's urging them to do. Yeah. It, because it does matter. Right. Exactly like you say. that it, What they're doing, the stand they take, and that, that flowed out of that extended passage about the resurrection. That what you believe about this is going to affect how you live. It's going to affect the choices you make. It's going to affect whether you're willing to sacrifice for God's future or not. So, those, those fit into the topics at hand and the stance he wants them to take as he is taking toward the church. Now, verse 15, I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Now the household of Stephanus. I feel like we've, we've ran into them before, haven't we? Is that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1? 1.16. 1.16. 
I did, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus mm -hmm. because they were early to be, early to be baptized and so uh, were the first converts in Achaia. Now where is Achaia? What is that? Is that one of those berry bowls you get? <laughs> okay, Achaia. And, and that's a good point, Monica. Um, to, when you come across a geographical place like that, look it up. Yeah, it might, it might matter. Basically, oh my, my geography here is going to be terrible. It's a good thing there's no camera. Okay, so you have Greece here, right? You have Greece. Athens is, well, Athens is down here. Kind of, and you have over here. You've got um, you've got um, the A. Let's see. You've got the Aegean and the Adriatic. You remember which is on which side? I don't. Aegean's over here. Aegean Sea, the Adriatic. I think is over here. You can check a map later. I might be wrong. And then you have Italy. You have you have Italy and Rome over here. And right on the, this end, you have a peninsula at the end of Greece called the Peloponnese Peninsula. And this area down here was also called Achaia. Or this, actually including Greece, this southern area, whereas up here was called Macedonia or Macedon. Um, Philip of Macedon is from here. Philip's uh, Macedon's son you've heard of. Anybody remember his name? Alexander. Yeah, Alexander was a big deal. They called him Alexander the Great. Yes, yeah, so from, 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 from Macedonia, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica are part of Macedonia, especially Philippi. And so Greek, down here, Athens and Corinth would be part of Achaia. And so Paul talks about the household of Stephanus, who were, were among the first converts of Achaia. Now he doesn't seem to be including Greece in that statement because there were there were or there, well Athens because there were converts in Athens. There were some of the leading women and some others who were converts in Athens. But he does say they were among this household was among the first, and so perhaps certainly the first in Corinth. And and Paul says, well, I baptized them. I baptized Crispus, I baptized Gaius, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Well, who did the baptizing then? Okay, possibly Timothy and Silas, or maybe it was Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus and others of his household. When he says household, what's he mean by that? That's one of those interesting words. We kind of know what that means. We just buzz right by it, right? Yeah, yeah, it includes everybody on the family estate. So, so Stephanus is probably, when we talk about it, it's somebody's household, it's probably not just some, some poor folks living in an apartment in town. An insula, it was called. Um, kind of a, a little cell within a larger building. We have apartments. Uh, th this would have been somebody who has their own household and uh, extended family living there and working the family business and servants or staff as well. Uh, they might have people, somebody that they've adopted in, kind of as an adopted son in that patron-client relationship. All of those are part of the household and they share a, a common bond and participation in the household business, the family business, advancing the um, interest of the master of the household. And so 
there would be other family members, but also other non-family members as part of this household of Stephanus, which is probably the first house church in Corinth. And so, so he holds Stephanus up as um, first converts. They have devoted themselves to service, the service of the saints. Be subject to these. So he says, you know them, you know their character, you know their history. Uh, they are your elders in the faith and you should be subject to them. Follow their lead. Don't go free-ranging here. And then he says something else interesting. We think about, okay, being subject to your leaders, that's being emphasized here. What else is being emphasized? Along with being subject to those of the household of Stephanus. Every fellow worker and laborer. So there's something about being subject to one another as well. Yeah. Is this like uh, fighting against the idea of being high class? Uh huh. Even though you are high class, you should still be subject to all of these other people in the church. Yeah, and there's ways to there's ways to um, there w there's probably ways to misuse this or misunderstand this as well. Like you could have a a pastor, for instance, and you've probably known some of these that want to please everybody. And they do that out of an obligation toward everybody. That really, I'm here to serve everybody, and that, that, that which is a, a, a good intention can easily be overwhelming because um, the person ends up being subject to everybody else's whims and desires and needs and is trying to then please everybody, which isn't always the best or the right way to serve any of them. And so this, this, this idea can certainly be misused, but the idea is that the church together is a mutually interdependent, a mutually and voluntarily interdependent organism, not merely an organization. And so even though there are different roles, and there's, there's, there, there are leaders, and there are Stephanus here, as the first converts, would likely be considered among the elders of the church at Corinth. And uh, yet, it's not just the leaders, that we are subject to one another. And the needs of others do have some hold upon us. We have an obligation to the genuine needs of others. And that, that's not merely making us a social commune, that's especially the spiritual needs of one another. And that means giving time to or for. That means being with. That means investing in. Um, there is a bond within the church that even as the household of Stephanus, Paul doesn't really unpack that any further here, but later on, household is going to be one of his chief metaphors for the church. And, he's, and the, the church is a household. It is, it is an extended family operating together to advance a particular interest. And uh, so each one in the household is subject to, to others, and yet they all have varying roles to play, kind of like in the body of Christ. So I think some of that is in the language that he's using here. And part of this, you're, we're trying to read Paul's letter as they heard and knew Paul. So we might be 
bringing some stuff in, but the test is, is this, is this additional background a bigger picture that fits with how they might have heard this because they know Paul and they share that, that, that shared background. I rejoice in the coming of Stephanus, the household of Stephanus, and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to these people. These, these people might have been the ones sent by, including, including Stephanus, might have been the ones sent by Corinth as messengers to Paul with this list of questions that they needed some clarity and they need some help and guidance from him on. And then these messengers, as well as others, like the household of Clo, have given him other information about the church also, that he has also responded to in the letter. But he's, he's described good fellowship together, right? Paul's not at Corinth, and he knows his letter is going to cause a little bit of a stir. He's, he's swatted them a little bit here. And so he, he is also reminding of the good fellowship. They, as your representatives, we're of one heart together. We all can have the same warmth of fellowship that I've experienced with those that you sent to me. So he's, 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 he's inviting that to continue. He wants that to be the mood that continues. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't. We know from the second letter, as Paul describes some of what happened in the meantime, that, um, and I think there was a handout that I gave you early on in the class that talked about the other letters, the four letters. Do you remember that? Yeah, two letters we don't have, and I did give some background of what, how those other two letters fit into the, into the context. So, uh, let's see, where are we then? Uh, they refresh my spirit. Okay, then, then he closes, he closes with, uh, well, kind of more standard boilerplate, um, his closing greetings. The churches of Asia send you greetings, because he's in Asia, he's in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Who are Aquila and Priscilla? Or Prisca here, which is short for Priscilla. It's a nickname. Who are they? Okay, they, they, were, they were canvas workers. They, in Acts chapter 18, they are mentioned as the ones that Paul encounters there and joins with in Corinth. So they were from Rome, they're in Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome, and then after meeting Paul in Corinth and working together, uh, they end up back in Ephesus. They seem to, maybe when Paul leaves and goes, and he stops on the second missionary journey, he stops in Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem, and Priscilla and Aquila may have stayed there, kind of preparing the way for when Paul would return. And so they're, they're his advance workers now. They were his advance workers in, in Corinth also, that he didn't know at the time. And now they're going to be the same. They're going to be his advance workers and prepare a place for him in Ephesus. And they'll do in Ephesus what they did in Corinth. And so they're doing that now. They have a house church in their house, just like they had before. And uh, so they're now with him in Ephesus. They send hearty greetings. Again, there's warmth there. All the brothers send you greetings. We're one happy family. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Maranatha. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Uh, I write this greeting with my own hand. What's going on there? Okay. Authentic as well. Okay. Okay, yes. Is somebody else um, um, an am, amuensis? Amuensis, I think is the term, um, was, was writing the letter for him. But at this point, he takes the pen and he finishes it in his own handwriting. And there's an authenticity there. They could compare that to things that he had written down for them while he was among them. And he does that, I think... I think in the Galatians as well, so nobody can say, oh, this wasn't really from Paul. And he says, see with what large letters I have written in my own hand, because he apparently had some eye trouble, that he, he wrote larger than, than uh, normal writing. Kind of like the John Hancock signing the Declaration of Independence. He wrote it really big. And, and that was, he was making a statement in doing that. He was, he was writing so big that the British couldn't miss his name that he was all in. That's what John Hancock was doing in that statement. And so, so Paul, is, Paul is doing the same thing here as he does in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, that he's, he, this, is, this is really from him. They can validate that. And they shouldn't let anybody minimize it or lessen the impact of the letter saying, well, how do we know? Maybe it's not even really from Paul. Maybe it's from that Timothy, that little Timothy guy. <laughs> no, it's really from Paul. Any other questions in chapter 16? It just often makes me think about how even Paul persecuted Christians. The fact that he was such a stoic, devoted person of his faith, that that's why he was chosen. Mm. And to, of course, to flip over. Yeah, he's a champion of, of Pharisaical Judaism. Who were the guardians of a truer, true to God's word, Judaism, than the Sadducees, certainly. And it just shows you how, what a miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, God, God, needed, God needed to open his eyes uh, there on the road to Damascus for him to see the truth, even though he was devoted to God's law. God still needed to open his eyes. And yet he carries that same devotion now to the truth of the gospel. So there's some aspects of Paul's personality that um, um, continue to be used. Yeah, his whole personality doesn't change when he's born again. And yet also, he can be very dogmatic. And yet, some of the things you see in there, there's a sensitive side. He's aware of personality issues. And he's, he's aware of the need to also build people up and to recognize and to affirm and to try to head off, if he can, a, a, um, um, a uh, more of a rebellious reaction. So those things you see going on in this closure. Oftentimes we... <coughs> We deal with the last topic, okay, he says a little bit about that gift, okay, that was interesting, and then we kind of wrap up the book, okay, that's, the rest is just kind of closing personal notes, and yet there's some, there's some real significant things of what Paul's doing in ministry that actually, how would we apply that? You know, we're not greeting any of those people, but what principles might you draw out of chapter 6 in terms of how you relate to other people within, within the church in ministry? Okay. 
Okay, so we, so we are family together, and so what does that bring? What does that lead us to do? Okay, the uh, conflict and misunderstanding is going to happen in family. Okay, being, being, being able to speak, being able to, to relate. And also there's, sometimes you look for um, opportunities to encourage and to affirm, uh, even in the midst of needing to give correction. Yeah, we need to be sensitive and help people to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he uses that image when he writes his earliest letters to the Thessalonians. Um, what is perhaps some of his earliest writings. He, he describes his ministry in terms of a loving father, a faithful father and a loving, nurturing mother. Both of those terms. Just the shock that the Jewish uh, establishment uh, must have been in disbelief when he Yes, yes, yes. When Paul, when Paul gets carried away by these Christians, yeah, for sure. Well, let's um, let's back up a little bit then. I really should have looked at a map first before I tried to draw that. Okay, key verse. I determined on nothing except. Christ crucified. And what's in that? I have determined though nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. None of it matters that statement. I'm going to go to that verse and make sure I didn't leave something important. I don't know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, so Jesus Christ. Him crucified. So, what does Christ tell you? What's that title mean? Okay, Messiah, the King, God's King, God's warrior King, God's victor King. Okay, sovereign, King, and yet crucified. There's 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 a horrible humility. A horrible humility uh, that that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you have this grand contradiction here, and that's what Paul determines to focus on, and that I suggested is the the a sovereignty a rest in this this his exaltation is our exaltation because we are in him and identified with him and joined to him and united with him and we are his people and as as he then is exalted and and reigns in his kingdom we will reign with him heirs of god and joint heirs with jesus and yet he says his to for his followers if anyone would follow me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me and so there is this joining him in his humility. The Corinthians were all over this side of it. And uh, they considered themselves to be already, already reigning, in a sense. And it kind of can remind you of some of the kingdom now theology that's out there. You know, that we are already kings, and, 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 and princes and princesses. And, but no, not yet. 
we are, we are living, living the crucified life, actually. And so the Corinthians wanted this. They didn't really want anything to do with this. And so, but this, 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 in light of Christ, in light of God's certainty, in light of the future kingdom and his coming, we can live in humility and sacrifice. So, that humility and sacrifice is the key to the issues that Paul addresses. And in chapters 1 to 4, how does humility and sacrifice of Christ crucified, how does that relate to chapters 1 to 4? Okay, in terms of the resurrection, and, and there is nothing else there, there's, we have no salvation. That he makes real clear in chapter 15. So we talked about the resurrection and the emptiness otherwise. Um, there's no gospel without the, without the resurrection, without Christ and him crucified and then raised. Um, in one to four, it's more about the cliques, the um, the how one the one esteemed others above themselves above others, and so forth. And uh, they're they're picking and choosing their favorite teachers, and uh, there's a lot of the 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 schisms or divisions that are going on. And the schisms or divisions exalt some, lift up some. Some of us feel better. We're the cool kids. But there's no room here. There's no room here for the cool kids. For the more approved. To the spiritually superior. Chapter 5. We deal with that uh, unconfronted sin. Sin is being allowed. We're just all about grace here, apparently. That they're not willing to confront a heinous sin that even the pagans kind of blush at. This really shouldn't be going on. They shouldn't be letting that happen. And yet they are letting it happen. Right, the immorality with the man and his, and his, and his father's wife. And then that bleeds into chapter 6 as well. Um, and, the, and the immorality that's the, the, the described in chapter 6b... Or we could say 6a actually has a different topic, the lawsuits. I want my rights. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I will not let somebody else walk over me. Jesus did. Why not rather be wronged? And we get into uh, marriage. Chapter 7. What's going on there? How does Christ and Him crucified relate to chapter 7 and just some of the things he, he says about marriage? Okay, to, to be, um, don't be unequally yoked. I'm not sure if he, does he, does that come out in chapter 7? Those phrases, but the principle is there. Not to, if she remarries, only marry, only to a believer and, and the husband likewise, a widow. Um, and uh, so there's, but there's principles that relate to it. the things that he says about marriage is not merely about one's own preference. 
Um, if the um, unbeliever is willing to willing to stay, then don't leave the unbeliever. It's not a matter of, but, but I'm a Christian now. I want a Christian husband, or I want a Christian wife. But you have these kids, and you have this husband. And if they're willing to stay, if the husband's willing to stay, or the wife's willing to stay, then you should stay with them, and that even for their sake, and for the children's sake. So what, something we know about marriage is marriage is not about me individually. And you see that played out with that added spiritual dynamic, but marriage is not about me. There is a giving of oneself. 8, 9, and 10, you see again, well, I could eat meat. I know I can eat meat. Meat's just meat. I like meat. And yet, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat. Lest I cause my brother to stumble. I'm thinking more about my brother, my sister, than I am about, I like meat. Okay? Now, for our group, Tom, we should have probably said maple bars, right? That would have fit in there better. You know, I will not ever again bring maple bars on Monday morning because I'm causing a brother to stumble. <laughs> so, 8 to 10, you can see, you can see how it fits in. Um, Chapter 11, we've got uh, things about the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things about the Lord's Supper, the, um, you know, the, the, the wealthy have lots of food, they're having a party, but each one's bringing their own picnic. Rather than, and we end up in a church today, what do we have, instead of, uh, instead of having picnic lunches where each one brings their own lunch, and some have food and some don't have food, we have a potluck. And normally, what do you try to do at a potluck? Just bring enough that'll kind of cover the food of your family. No, you try to bring all extra. You try to bring extra. You don't want there to be not enough because some others didn't bring enough, so you try to bring a little extra. Again, thinking about others. So we go from a picnic to a potluck, and that is a Christ and Him crucified. I'm bringing food to share with others rather than bringing food for myself. Yeah. They had a potluck. <laughs> Plenty of food. What a great church. <laughs> That's how you know. Okay, and then you get to 12 and, okay, we talked about 11, you get to 12 and 12 to 14, spiritual gifts. There's a diversity of gifts. So it's not about one gift or some people's gifts. There's a diversity of gifts that are to be used in love for what? Building up of others in the body. Gifts aren't to build self up. Gifts are to build others up. So it's not about self. Again, it's the crucified life. So you see that theme flowing through. And it's not surprising because Jesus said it. If anyone would be my disciple, let him take up deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because that's, that's how Jesus lived. And so following him would look like that. So it's not surprising that Paul instructs the church altogether, corporately, to live in ways that are denying ourselves for the sake of others. And that, I think, is really the... the, uh, um, the um, nutshell description of Christian maturity is denying oneself 
for the sake of others. Whereas the fall is an inward curvature of the soul where I focus in upon myself rather than others. What I want to do for me. And we see the, the sinfulness of humanity in two-year-olds. They, they come out with it very easily. That's all about them and what they want. They begin to assert their own little wills. And um, that's, 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 that's how we are as fallen humans, needing this redemption that we would walk in a way that looks like Christ. Sacrifice being the epitome of that. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, this is 1 Corinthians. Tom, would you, I'm sorry, Steve? Good job. <laughs> right on time. Tom, would you, would you close in prayer, in prayer for us? Amen.